I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to our sermon text today, which is found in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, and I will be reading a fairly uh, a more extended passage than I normally do, so it might help you to turn with me, uh, beginning with verse 2, and I will read through verse 20. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There is no soundness, only wounds and bruises, and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughters of Zion is left like a shelter in a vine vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a sea, city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat from the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of this sermon might be pleasing and acceptable to you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the favorite part of your home? Do you have something that you especially like? 
I can imagine a variety of answers to that. Maybe what you love most about your home is the kitchen where many meals have been prepared for family and friends. Or maybe if you're like me, you like the table where they've been consumed. Perhaps the favorite part of your house is the porch. Maybe you have a, a view of the mountains or maybe you have a little fire pit that you've sat on the porch and enjoyed evenings with your loved ones. Maybe the favorite part of your house is the family room where you gather with loved ones and watch movies or just share times together. What's the favorite part of your home? Did you see on the news this week that structural engineers were doing a routine inspection of the bridge that spans the Mississippi on I-40 and they found a crack? They had to stop traffic for the indeterminate future. It was structurally unsound. When you thought about what is the favorite part of your home, did any of you immediately think of the foundation? And yet if there was a crack in the foundation, you'd have to leave the home. It's that very image that Jesus turns to at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps the most famous sermon ever preached in all of human history. Jesus concluded this extended teaching by saying, For those of you who hear my words and put them into practice, you're like a man who built his home on the rock. Storms and rains came and the house stood. But those who've heard and don't build, don't put them into practice, are like those who've built on sand. You know, I can imagine uh, that the house that was built, Jesus doesn't say the, the house that was built on sand, but maybe it had the best view of any house in the neighborhood. Maybe it had the biggest deck most expansive family room. Maybe it had one of those wide open kitchens with an aisle where you could even prepare all the different things. But its foundation was sand. And when the waters and the rains came, the house fell. Here's my question. Are you building on the rock? Do you want to build on the rock? It is not too late. For the next seven weeks, we're going to look at seven steps to build on the rock. And we're going to look from the prophet Isaiah. So look with me. The first thing we're going to look at, we find in this opening indictment of Israel. Do you know what an indictment is? I hope not. <laughs> uh, an indictment, of course, is a legal proceeding. Uh, in our uh, jurisprudence, uh, we don't even think about the importance of indictments, really. It seems like a procedural matter when a charge is announced to the community. Uh, and yet, indictments were an issue that was at the, a very kind of major concern at the Revolutionary War period. And you can, with a little reflection, realize why. Uh, there were times when people were being arrested and there was no announcement of why they were arrested. The government didn't feel compelled to tell why. 
And so the insistence on indictments is a way to make sure that when charges are brought against someone, everyone knows exactly what it is they're being charged with. It's quite common in totalitarian regimes that people just get swept up off the street and loved ones have no idea why they've been arrested. Well, when the Lord comes to visit this rebellious people, he offers an indictment. And he begins with this in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. You can kind of skip over this, but in the prophetic materials, indictments always begin this way. With an appeal to all of creation. Think for a moment about that imagery. The mountains, the stars, the moons. Generation after generation has stood before the same moon. Cleopatra would have looked up at that moon. King Tut would have looked up at the same moon you and I look up at. So would have Moses and Solomon and David. The Lord's saying, look at the moon around you, the stars and the skies, the mountains. I want all of creation to be a witness of the charge I'm bringing against my people. And then he goes on to talk about the ox and the donkey. Animals often are associated with certain characteristics. For example, owls are commonly associated with wisdom. I wish the owl that perched by my window last night would have taken his wisdom elsewhere. But you know, foxes are kind of famously associated with being sly. Oxes are known for their strength, but not necessarily their smarts. And donkeys for their stubbornness. You know, that goes way back. The Greek writer Apuleius in his classic Metamorphosis, that person's turned into a donkey, a sign of a symbol for stubbornness. Ancient Egyptian writings have that same thing. And even in our modern days, cartoons in Shrek, the donkey is a sign of stubbornness. And the Lord says, even the dumb ox knows who feeds him. Even the stubborn donkey knows when the day's work is done, when he's being led to the barn. But my people Israel don't know their master. Here's the first building block for building on the rock. We need wisdom. How would you define wisdom? Here's how Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to discern inner qualities and relationships. I want you to think about that image for just a minute. The ability to discern inner qualities and relationships. We see how wisdom's important as we apply it to all manner of subject. The ability to understand how money works, for example, can enable you to be a very successful businessman. I remember in one of my basic economics courses in college, I won't tell you what I got in that course. <laughs> economics 101, I heard that often quoted expression, money makes money. Not true, is it? You can have a lot of money that you put in a, in a jar and it doesn't multiply. That expression, money makes money, 
describes the fact that people who understand the inner workings of money and how it can function in an economy can use that as capital to build their investment. And some of you have been very successful. You've had wisdom with how the inner workings of money is. Some understand how mechanized equipment works. It's fascinating to me to be around someone who really understands how machines and motors and engines work together. They understand how you can fix something that's broken if they understand how it works. Sometimes someone who understands uh, how a tool works and what its capabilities are can take it and repurpose it for a different problem. They have wisdom about the inner workings. My brother, who is a heart surgeon, who I got to spend time with, it's fascinating to me to hear him think through the problems of a patient and how they can go about trying to fix and intervene. It's because they understand the inner workings. Some of you may not have wisdom with money. Maybe some of you don't have wisdom with mechanical things or medical things. But some of you are blessed with wisdom to understand how relationships work. Maybe your understanding of those relationships is what enables you to have lots of deep friendships. The ability to know when something needs to be addressed and when something needs to be ignored. When something needs to be shared and when something needs to be confronted. It's a wisdom to understand how relationships work. And we see where people have wisdom, there is flourishing. But today, our subject is not wisdom in regards to money or friendship or all of these good things. It is, do you understand who God is? The Lord, maker of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, who's revealed himself to us. We see in verse 4 that Israel didn't know. Sinful nation. They've forsaken the Lord and spurned the Holy One of Israel. They've turned their backs on him. Do any of you know who the name Didi De Jong is? Some of you might have heard that name. Uh, in when the Nazi regime attacked Belgium, she was just 23 years old. Uh, when those Nazi forces overran the government and the government capitulated and surrendered to the Nazis. Her world was turned upside down. She was an artist by profession. She started being a nurse, caring for those who'd been injured in the war. As the war went on, one of the big points of conflict, of course, for the Allies was the air bombings over Germany and occupied Europe. And when Allied planes were shot down, there were times when the pilots were able to successfully exit the plane, parachute. But then they found themselves behind enemy lines. Didi De Jong initiated and operated the largest rescue not network behind enemy lines, 23 years old. She arranged a network of safe houses. And when a allied serviceman would uh, parachute down, 
there are reports of, of servicemen describing their experience. Within four minutes, the locals had changed their clothes such that they looked like uh, a person from France or Belgium. And they hid them in the farmhouse. And then Dee Dee herself or another young lady would accompany them through the checkpoint after checkpoint where if they were discovered, the soldiers would be arrested and they would be sent to death. Didi, this 23-year-old, slight, frail, Belgian woman rescued 800 pilots. You know, after the war, they had records of those who had been saved by Didi and others. She, uh, she personally uh, accompanied almost 200 soldiers. And the soldiers were being asked uh, about the comet line uh, network and soldier after soldier said in my entire experience of the war I saw no greater courage no greater heroism than Dee Dee and these other young ladies Dee Dee would be captured and she was sent to Ravensbrück one of the worst concentration camps 70% of the women in Ravensbrück died but Dee Dee survived you know, after the war, what she did, she was awarded all sorts of uh, medals from the United States and from other places, the United Kingdom, all the Allied forces. But after the war, she went to Africa, to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, and worked in a leper colony the rest of her life. Several decades after the war, her mother was dying. Her sister had died in the concentration camp, so had her father. She was the last surviving daughter the RAF heard about what was going on and she couldn't get back in time before her mother died and so those RAF pilots left their base and flew and picked her up in Ethiopia and they brought her back to her mom why would they do that because she had saved their lives she had risked her own life beyond what anyone else had would do and those who had been saved knew it. And God is saying to Israel, I've saved you and you don't know it. You don't realize what I've done for you. You praise me with your lips. You offer sacrifices. You, you gather for your festivities. But I know your heart. I know that what's on your lips is not really a recognition of what I've done for you. So here's my question for you. Do you know what God has done for you? Does your life reflect it? God says, your hands are stained with blood. Your land is desolate. It is empty. It is bankrupt. Now you might think from that that Isaiah is writing after Israel's been destroyed. A historian would tell you in 587, Zion was burned to the ground. The temple, not a brick was left on the temple. But of course, you'd be wrong. Isaiah wrote these words hundreds of years before that happened. Sometimes people think he is prophesying about the desolation to come. And maybe that's the case. Here's what I want to suggest to you. 
Isaiah saw that Israel was already desolate. Israel was already bankrupt. The judgment that was coming from Babylon that would come before from Assyria was just an outer confirmation of what had already happened. I'm starting this series on Sunday nights talking about uh, ethical issues of our day and so I was consulting the ethics and religious liberty website which has lots of helpful resources and one of the articles was about divorce and the writer about that article uh, of that article made an insight that I thought was very illuminating for those who've experienced the pain of divorce she said after seven years of marriage she came to discover something that was going on that she had no idea about she had no idea. She said, when, when my marriage blew up for all the world to see, what I didn't realize at the time is that it had already blown up. I just didn't know it. I just didn't realize it until that point. Is it possible that your relationship with God is like the people of Israel? It's blown up. You might not realize it yet because the rain hasn't come and washed away the foundation. You're sitting on the nice deck and you don't realize that any moment the structure could break and you have to move out of the house. Hear this invitation. Verse 18. Come now and let us reason together. Right? This invitation. Come. Let us talk this out. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal this very day talking about a new exhibit of Nero, the Emperor Nero. And this new exhibit claims that Nero was kind of often misunderstood. Figure that. Nero, who burned Christians to illuminate Rome. I don't think there's much redeeming about Nero. Joseph Stalin. People want to redeem Joseph Stalin. I can tell you this. Joseph Stalin, if you disagreed with him or Nero... He wouldn't say, come, let's, let's talk it out. And when the Lord invites you to come and reason this together, the Lord's not saying, come tell me what you think and I'll make compromises with you. What the Lord is saying is, if you are illuminated by truth, you're going to realize just how good and loving I am. And I want you to know that. I want you to come and learn that. But you have to choose to do it. Will you? We know what the people of Israel chose. We know that the people of Israel had prophet after prophet after prophet. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk. How many prophets do you need? Will you listen? If you listen, you will eat the fruit of the land, that which God has desired for you to have. But if you reject what God has offered, there's only sword, there's only destruction. And don't think to yourself, well, that's just Old Testament. Jesus, in that very image of the house built on the rock, compares it with the house that is going to be destroyed. Did you wait in line for gas this week? If you got gas, you did. In just a moment, that whole pipeline was taken offline because of this hacker or this group that was hacking. And it 
put our nation in just a day in, in crisis. Do you think that could happen again? You better believe it. Maybe some of you remember 9-11 and how it got people's attention thinking about those things that matter most. Maybe it's not 9-11 that got your attention. Maybe it was at a summer camp where you heard the gospel in a different way. Maybe it was because of a worker that came to your school or just invested in your life. Maybe it was in a hospital room. I hope you will praise God that you were able to see the loving care of your Savior whose shed blood makes it possible for you to have forgiveness. He knows your name. Do you know his name? He wants you to. May you listen.